The new year means there are dozens of new faces on Capitol Hill and in state houses across the country. Here in Washington, members of Congress expect to be sworn in today, but that can't happen until the House elects a speaker. Elsewhere, lawmakers from Albany to Sacramento are gathering to set their legislative priorities. The midterm elections shifted state politics bluer. For the first time in over a decade, Democratic state legislatures now govern more people than those controlled by Republicans. After the break, we take a look at the key issues facing state governments that could drive national politics this year. And of course, we hear from you. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining us is Reed Wilson. He's the founder and editor of Pluribus News. That's a news organization focused on state politics across the U.S. Reed, welcome back. Hey, Jen. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So before we get to state houses, let's start here in D.C. While Republicans will control the House of Representatives, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy still doesn't have the votes he needs to become the next House Speaker. What does that still vacant role mean for the new session of Congress? Well, it means that really nothing can get done until the House agrees on a a new speaker. So what will happen is the House will take a roll call vote uh, on the speaker. And if nobody gets a majority of those voting, uh, then there will be a second ballot. Now, a second ballot hasn't happened for uh, about 100 years, and it could lead to a very long, drawn-out process in which McCarthy is trying to, Kevin McCarthy is trying to get to the majority that he needs to become speaker. But if he doesn't get there on the first ballot, it's tough for me to see a lot of Republicans breaking for him in the second ballot. Usually uh, in, in instances like this, a first ballot is a high watermark for somebody who is near the speakership but can't quite get there. So um, there may be a case later today where an alternative candidate springs up, but so far we haven't seen anybody but an alternative candidate who's sort of more of a protest vote, Congressman Andy Biggs from Arizona. Hmm. Well, Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer was reelected as the majority leader when his party picked up two new seats. How is the Senate positioning itself against the new Republican-led House at the start of this upcoming session? So I think this is the Senate's sort of return to their role as the the calm uh, saucer uh, in in that old that old metaphor uh, that cools the tea. And they're going to try to act like the adults in the room uh, against this much more raucous caucus in the House of Representatives. So, and it's also, by the way, important to note that in those Senate elections that happened last year, when Democrats netted an extra seat, and now we'll have fifty one out of the one hundred seats in the U.S. Senate, they now have the the ability to get nominations through uh, a lot more quickly. So I think you'll see a lot more of President Biden's nominations taking up uh, the the time in the Senate agenda, just like as in uh, as when uh, Republicans controlled the Senate under President Trump, when uh, they spent a lot of their time uh, passing his nominations and, and not really doing any anything else because there was such a tension between Senate Republicans and House Democrats. Well, there's long been critiques of Congress and, and its dysfunction. And we'll talk about state legislatures a little bit later. But how does congressional dysfunction affect the work of state legislatures? 
I mean, I've, it has given state legislatures the realization in the last few years that they're the ones who get to drive a lot of policy. And in, in talking to these legislators over the last decade, I mean, they went from uh, trying to advance policy that fit their state to really understanding that they're the vanguard of national policy now. And you know what I always say, what happens in a state legislature today is going to happen in 25 states next year and federally the year after that. Uh, think about the major uh, domestic policy achievements of several of the last recent presidents, Bill Clinton's welfare reform, Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act, Donald Trump's criminal justice reform, they all started out as projects that in state legislatures that spread elsewhere and then finally Congress took it up. I think there are a lot of things on the floors in various state legislatures this year that could become the foundation of the next president's legacy, whoever that next president may be. Well, for the first time since 1934, the party of the incumbent president didn't lose control of a single state house. Daniel Squadron is the founder of the States Project. That's a political fundraising and advocacy organization focused on getting Democrats elected in state government. And he spoke with us a bit earlier. Every place where there was any chance at shifting governing power, we went out there and did it. In addition to defending places like Maine and Nevada that were under threat, We believe that even though the odds were low and that the outcome could well be disappointing, it was absolutely critical to build governing power in places like Minnesota and Michigan and Pennsylvania, where, frankly, uh, folks laughed at us and said it was impossible. Reid, why did state politics become more important for Democrats this election cycle? Well, it's always been important for Democrats. I think there was just a new realization that states play a key role in uh, basically building the bench and setting the rules for the federal elections. I mean, we saw in 2020, as President Trump desperately tried to cling on to power, uh, that he tried to pressure, he and his allies tried to pressure state legislatures to do things that were illegal and overturning election results. Democrats, I mean, they, they knew this, but I think it underscored for them the importance of maintaining and, and growing their control in state legislative elections. You know, more than a decade ago, in, in 2010, the 2010 elections, uh, when Republicans had such a great night, they took back 63 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. What went overlooked was just how well they did in state legislative elections. For the last decade, Democrats have been trying to dig out of that hole, and this was the first election when they made some serious inroads. They picked up legislative chambers in both the Michigan House and Senate, uh, the Minnesota State Senate, and the uh, Pennsylvania State House, although there's a a little asterisk there because of some vacancies. We can talk about that if you'd like. Uh, But those those gains were tremendous in states where Democrats have been behind the eight ball for more than a decade. Mm. But that, that leads me to, you mentioned Michigan, and Michigan flipped after an independent redistricting committee was formed in the state. So uh, talk us through that piece of the Michigan story. Yeah, so Michigan uh, had been uh, sort of typical a, a typical redistricting process before that independent uh, redistricting commission was passed by voters. The typical process is where legislators draw their own lines. And of course, a legislative majority is going to draw lines that benefit them. That's why the 2010 elections were so crucial. Right before a redistricting process, Republicans gained control of state legislators that they hadn't controlled for decades, uh, if, if not 
longer. And once they controlled those seats, they made sure to draw lines that favored them. So for the last decade, while Democrats slowly chipped away at Republican advantages in the U.S. Congress, uh, Republicans held their advantage in all of these state legislatures. So uh, once we got to this latest redistricting period, a number of states had passed those independent uh, redistricting commissions, or in some cases, partisan redistricting commissions. Uh, And in a lot of places, those independent commissions were the genesis of some real Democratic gains, which I think underscores how, I mean, gerrymandered the last versions of maps were. And that's not to say that only Republicans conduct gerrymanders. Democrats do too in states like Oregon and New York. Uh, But the independent commissions were no doubt a benefit to the Democrats who had been at a disadvantage because of those Republican gerrymanders. Well, why have Republicans been ahead of the game in state houses? If If it's not just about gerrymandering, what is it about? Well, again, I don't think it's that Republicans are ahead of the game. I think it's that Republicans have held the advantage for the last decade. In years before that, I mean, Democrats had a huge advantage uh, in state legislatures. What we've seen, though, in recent years is a complete political realignment of the once solid South. Uh, If you look at state legislatures today, the the South, uh, Southern states are virtually all controlled by Republicans. If you rewind 20 or 30 years, they were all controlled by Democrats. So the the political realignment that uh, we went through over the last half century or so uh, has taken place more recently in uh, southern states, giving Republicans an advantage there. Then there were gerrymanders, no question, in, in a number of states where Republicans did well in the 2010 midterm elections going into the 2012 redistricting cycle, and Republicans have kept those advantages more so than they've been able able to in the U.S. Congress. So the Dobbs decision in June overturning Roe v. Wade moved the issue of abortion access to the state level. And according to the Guttmacher Institute, 16 states had near total abortion bans in place at some point during 2022. Read briefly, which states are planning new abortion restrictions or tightening existing ones? Uh, pretty much every red state is going to have a debate over uh, restricting abortion further. And this is actually bringing up a really interesting schism among Republicans. If you get to uh, restrict abortion access, where's the line? Some states are going to go with 15 weeks after conception. Other states will go with six weeks. uh, And some other states are debating a total ban. It's actually an interesting divide among Republicans who are pro-life. Let's add another voice to the conversation. Lauren McGaughy covers Texas state politics for the Dallas Morning News. Lauren, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me. Lauren, the Texas state legislature meets once every two years. Their session begins early next week. What are the key issues lawmakers are hoping to address in their limited time to pass legislation? Uh, You're right. Texas only meets once every two years, which means they have a lot to do during their session. Uh, You know, everything from passing a massive state budget to dealing with, you know, the, the culture war issues to bread and butter issues. Um, this year, we're actually going to see them split the difference a bit between the bread, or, bread and butter issues and, and those red meat politics issues. We know they're going to want to uh, address property taxes in Texas, which have really been skyrocketing because we don't have an income tax in the state. Um, we know that education will be a top issue, both in terms of parents and, and their rights in the classroom with their children and potentially even higher education issues around tenure. And then we, of course, expect issues like abortion and LGBT rights to crop up as well. What's your sense of of the big issues Texas lawmakers hope to push up to the national stage? 
That's a good question. You know, um, your your previous uh, speaker had was talking about bubbling issues bubbling up from the state level, and in Texas, in the past, we have seen a lot of these more political cultural issues bubbling up. And so, I will be watching uh, the the issues that might be red meat issues that Republican leaders are hoping to show uh, their their electors, their voters. Um, that you know, we we did what we said we were going to do during their election. So these might be things like a parental rights bill. That's a a bill that has been proposed by the lieutenant governor who presides over the Senate, who has incredible power over what passes through the legislature. And that there's been scant uh, details on what might actually be contained within that bill, but it will probably involve discussion of what kind of issues around gender and sexuality should be discussed in the classroom. Well, Texas bans abortions in almost all cases and allows individual citizens to file lawsuits against those aiding uh, someone seeking an abortion. What further steps are Republican lawmakers proposing to restrict abortion access? Yeah, well, we're actually seeing that there might be some appetite among Republicans to deal with uh, some exceptions, actually, to that bill. There has been confusion in the medical community about uh, what uh, what specifically a doctor can do to save the life of a pregnant person uh, during a pregnancy. And so there has been some powerful Republicans in the Senate, and even the House Speaker has said he's heard some appetite uh, in that chamber to actually include some exceptions specifically about rape in that bill. So we'll have to see if there's actually a, a slight loosening, a slight um, clarification there in the Texas abortion ban during the session. Well, this is also the first time the legislature will meet since the school shooting in Uvalde. A Texas Senate committee issued a report in response to that tragedy that calls for greater access to mental health services and heightened security on school campuses. What more do we know about the proposed bills focused on school safety? We know that there's unlikely to be a serious discussion about uh, tightening gun laws in Texas. Texas in the past couple of sessions has even uh, has loosened things up almost as fully as they can be loosened. It's legally legal to openly carry a firearm in Texas. Um, it's e- even legal to, to carry on to a college campus. And so we're unlikely to see much of a pulling back on any of that. Um, so there will be more of a discussion about so-called school hardening. You know, this might look like locks on doors. This might look like metal detectors, funneling grants, uh, state money into that. Um, and then there's also maybe a discussion about uh, safety in schools and um, uh, the reviving some of a debate around so-called school vouchers, which would allow parents to take public school money and uh, take that money with them on the road if they want to to have their student uh, attend a, a private parochial school. Now, Lauren, parents whose children were killed at Robb Elementary have called on lawmakers to raise the age to purchase high-capacity firearms in Texas from 18 to 21. You said there's there's little likelihood there will be any changes to the state's gun control laws this year. But even with the parents advocating for this change, could, could we see any shift at all in the state? Uh, well, what we're hearing right now from the leaders of the two chambers is that they they fall back on this. Well, I haven't seen the support yet among Republicans in the chambers. So that's the narrative we're getting right now. Obviously, anything can shift during a state legislative session. Sometimes they can be very unpredictable. So we'll have to see what happens. But right now, they seem to be telegraphing that they're not seeing much support among the Republicans in the two chambers for raising the age uh, from 18 to 21 for the ownership of high-capacity rifle. 
Well, immigration remains a key issue in Texas. The state continues to send undocumented migrants from Texas to New York City and Washington, D.C. Here's Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. We need to continue the governor's plan of border funding. Let's go back to this $27 billion. You know, I don't know what the governor is going to ask us for. I hope that's in the base budget because what we have done on the border, people say, well, they're still crossing. Yes, they're still crossing because of President Biden. That's why they're crossing. But without our DPS, without our National Guard, without the state doing what we're doing, the situation would be far worse. Lauren, how does the state legislature plan to use some of its $27 billion surplus to fund new border security initiatives? Right. This is another one of those issues um, that bubbles up from the state legislatures. So we've seen states uh, like Florida and Texas, uh, which actually in their state constitutions don't have much control over the immigration issue, find other ways to to take a stand on, on the issue. Um, obviously, we've seen governors order busing of migrants to, uh, to blue cities and blue states. And in Texas, we will see them continue to funny, funnel state money into that issue. Um, Texas has funneled billions, billions of dollars over, th- over the years to having Nash, uh, state guard troops on the border. And we're likely to see even more money funneled from the state budget into that issue this year. Well, Lauren, we were talking earlier about some of the uh, breaks in the GOP in the House here in D.C. Are Republicans in Texas uh, state legislature, are they in lockstep with one another or are we seeing similar divides? Uh, Definitely not. (laughs) There is always a huge power struggle between the House and the Senate. Um, uh, The House and Senate in Texas are both controlled by Republicans, and all of the statewide elected positions have also been in Republican hands for more than 25 years in Texas, but everyone has a different agenda, and uh, there's usually some disagreement between the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the House Speaker, but especially as we get into the later days of the legislative session, which, you know, April, May, when we see people true uh, agendas come out, there'll be more and more disagreement uh, between the two chambers. And, you know, we might see some horse trading. We might see one issue passed in the Senate and then just suddenly die in the House. So that's when it starts to get, you know, more unpredictable. And and we see... um, we see where where's pe- where people's true priorities lie. So for a national audience, uh, curious about what might come out of Texas and spread across the country, anything in particular you think we should watch? For sure. I think where people need to be watching what we do on property taxes, homestead exemptions, uh, K-12 education, for sure. Um, and also the energy debate. You know, we had a couple of hard freezes here uh, in Texas that, you know, in one case, hundreds of people died. And so there's still a discussion about what kind of energy uh, the state should invest in and what they shouldn't. And that's an issue that can that definitely set the agenda at the national stage as well. That's Lauren McGaughy. She covers state politics for the Dallas Morning News. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. We're discussing the key issues facing state government in 2023. Up next, we turn to California and hear how Democratic lawmakers want to tackle the price at the pump. We'll be right back. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from one of you. This is Madeline calling from the Manistee National Forest. There should be a law that they can't use or pass on our name and address, a telephone number, without our permission. They don't get away with this in Europe. They shouldn't be allowed to get away with it here in the United States. 
Thanks for that message, Madeline. And let's add one more voice. Joining us now from Sacramento, California, is Nicole Nixon. She's the state government reporter for CAP Radio. That's the NPR member station in California's capital. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Now, Nicole, to Madeline's point, tech privacy is an issue facing millions of Americans. And California has been a leader in this space. How did the governor and the state legislature take steps last year to protect Californians' personal data? Yeah, like you said, this is a place where California is kind of seen as a leader, especially uh, in the absence of federal movement on this. Um, And that's because a lot of big online companies are based here in California. You know, Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Um, Last year, the legislature passed a couple laws to set strict new requirements for, um, you know, digital products. One is targeted at children. Um, So online services, products used by kids under 18, um, these companies would be required to default to the most restrictive privacy settings for users under 18. It would ban websites from tracking the location of minors. Um, And this is a first in the nation law. I I think New York has introduced something similar. Um, To Madeline's point, though, Um, California is also a state that's approved privacy protections that allows users, like in the European Union, to opt out of having their personal data tracked and sold. So anytime a resident in California visits a website, they can check that do not do not sell my personal information box on the website. Reid, what other states are seeking to expand their, their digital privacy protections? You know, we've seen a lot of uh, action around privacy uh, over the last couple of years. Five states have already done so, along with California, also Colorado, Connecticut, Utah, and Virginia. And I think we're likely to see other measures in places like Wisconsin, Florida, Iowa, and Indiana. And this is a really good example of uh, how the states get to lead in a way that sort of guides Congress. Because the last thing these tech companies want is 50 different versions of privacy rights bills uh, where they have to you know, tweak their settings between Iowa and Indiana and Illinois. Uh, instead, they would rather have one federal standard. So as these states uh, pass their various patchwork uh, laws, it puts even more pressure on Congress to act. But at the same time, a Republican House and a Democratic Senate probably aren't going to agree on how to uh, tackle something as complicated as privacy. Well, another major issue on the minds of Americans, gas prices. Let's hear from you, Nicole. What plans do the governor and lawmakers in Sacramento have to address the cost of gasoline in the state? Yeah, the governor has been pushing um, sort of a new policy that I don't think we've seen before uh, in this country, but he wants to limit what oil companies can charge at the pump. Um, And this is because, you know, obviously gas got really expensive last summer, um, after Russia invaded Ukraine and a ban on Russian oil. Um, one th- in California, though, we saw sort of a second price spike in the fall. Um, and this is while the price of crude oil was low. So people were really confused why they were seeing prices go up past $6 a gallon again in California. Um, and at the same time, a lot of oil companies were p- reporting record profits. So this really angered the governor. He has accused oil companies of ripping off consumers. Um, he's attributed their high prices to corporate greed. Now these companies say that um, There's a lot of reasons why their prices were high. There was uh, refinery maintenance. Um, There's high taxes, environmental rules and regulations in California that, you know, does uh, raise the price here compared to other states. But 
uh, Governor Gavin Newsom is proposing legislation to this year to limit that uh, that price of gas, and it would be based on market factors like the price of crude oil. So it would impose a profit ceiling for these companies, and if they pass that ceiling, they would be hit with fines. That money would then be returned to drivers and taxpayers. Well, Reed, we talked a bit about how legislation at the state level or, or policy initiatives at the state level can can bubble up to the national level. Last year, California passed a law banning the sale of gas-powered vehicles by 2035. Recently, Oregon and Washington Washington passed similar proposals. How is California influencing climate policy and the shift towards renewable energy on a national level? Yeah, California has been the leader on uh, sort of setting the national tempo on uh, on climate legislation for decades. I mean, long before Gavin Newsom came along and long before others did, um, California has uh, their measures to uh, limit gas-powered cars are going to uh, going to become sort of de rigueur in blue states across the country. Um, they have also been a leader on uh, things like carbon uh, carbon taxes and and even things that haven't passed. Past uh, in California have become models in other states where people are trying new things. I mean, California is such a massive uh, a player, not just in the nation but also in the world. I mean, it's you know, talk to any California politician and they will tell you that they are the world's fifth largest economy, uh, and that sort of that economic power gives them the ability to set standards for other places. So when they do something like uh, requiring the phase out of gas gas powered vehicles. That gives the auto industry a massive incentive to move into electric vehicles because it's you know, they, they need that California market uh, in order to to build their build their businesses. Hmm. Well, Nicole, I want to touch on one more key issue before we let you go, and that's the opioid crisis. According to the California Department of Healthcare Services, nearly ten thousand people in the state died from drug overdose deaths between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. More than half those deaths came from fentanyl. What steps is the legislature taking to tackle that crisis? Yeah, this has been an issue actually where Republicans in the um, California legislature who are in the super minority, uh, they've been pushing this for the last year or two. And I think we'll see some bipartisan steps this year. Um, We've seen a couple bills introduced already that would um, require certain public places to keep uh, the overdose reversal medication naloxone in on hand, places like schools and libraries, even bars, hotels, and gas stations. One thing about fentanyl and uh, the opioid crisis is I think that Democrats here will be very reluctant to increase criminal penalties for having or distributing fentanyl. Um, you know, there's an understanding among many lawmakers here that the war on drugs went too far and it disproportionately harmed people of color. So they don't want to employ that sort of lock them up mentality again. Um, and they're recognizing, though, that something needs to be done, though, to remove this opioid in, from the streets and save lives. That's Nicole Nixon. She's the state government reporter for Cap Radio in Sacramento. Nicole, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Stephen tweeted us, as a Virginian, our surplus should be used to raise the salaries of K-12 teachers. If our Commonwealth is to grow a successful workforce, we need to retain the great teachers we have. Performance-based bonuses aren't enough. Reed, you started Pluribus News last year to fill the vacuum left by media organizations no longer covering state houses. Daniel Squadron, founder of the States Project, told us about the importance of state politics in driving the national conversation. We have seen over the last 50 years, over the last 20 years, and over the last two years, when Democrats had control of both chambers of Congress and the presidency, 
is that it's actually state legislatures that are driving the direction of this country. You care about building the bench for the future, you care about state legislatures. It's where people like Barack Obama, Hakeem Jeffries, Stacey Abrams, and Matt Gates all got their start. How have Americans' interest in state government changed over your career reporting in this space, Reid? Oh, I think it's absolutely booming. People recognize now that states are where the action begins. And you know, when we hear about state legislatures uh, in the national media, it tends to be when somebody's doing something crazy. You know, it's when when Fox News grabs onto something or MSNBC grabs onto something that their audience can be outraged about. But the real action happens in legislatures because forty nine of them have balanced budget requirements. So they, you know, un- unlike Congress, where Congress can just print more money, you know, the states have to do something and uh, the way and and by the way at the same time these state these legislators don't have the same infrastructure that say a member of Congress does a lot of them are doing this as part-time jobs as retirement projects uh, you know in addition to their second jobs uh, or their in, in addition to their main jobs I should say and so they are looking for ideas and the place they can find those ideas is in what their colleagues in other states have done so I think more and more over the last decade we've seen states recognize recognizing that uh, what their neighbors or the people across the country have done can be a model for their own states. And that's why we see what happens in Sacramento or Albany or Austin today happening in 25 states next year and federally the year after that. Uh, Let's end on this email from Nancy in Michigan, who says, my number one issue is climate change and environmental challenges. However, I would like to see our legislators pass a bill that would establish daycare for children of working parents. Reed, what's one big state politics story you think hasn't got enough attention and, and that we should keep an eye on in the new year? So Nancy brings up the good one of of daycare, and that goes back to my earlier point about workforce development. the The crisis in in daycare and, and things like that is not that is not that we have uh, you know we we don't know how to provide daycare or anything like that. It's that there simply aren't enough workers who are able and capable of uh, of filling those fields, and that extends to teaching. There are tens of thousands of teacher vacancies around the country. It extends to high tech manufacturing for the future. Uh, as the boomers retire, we've always known that we'd had to fill this this employment gap. Well, the crisis is here, and it, it touches absolutely every issue and absolutely every sector of the economy. That's what states are going to have to deal with over the next decade. That's Reed Wilson. He's the founder and editor of Pluribus News. Reed, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jen. Thank you. Today's producer was Chris Remington with help from June Leffler. And before we go, this program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.